Welcome to the latest on the law, a podcast of the Boston Bar Association. The Commonwealth's premier legal association, the BBA, is home to over 15,000 members and 140 institutional partners consisting of law firms, corporations, government agencies, legal aid organizations, and law schools. Visit us at bostonbar.org to learn more. Welcome everyone to this webinar. Thank you to the BBA and uh, lawyer, Lawyers for Civil Rights um, for having me moderate this really important discussion. Um, as Trenton mentioned, um, I have a few questions prepared, uh, but I fully expect uh, to get questions from the audience. Um, I think the chat function, your chat function has been turned off. So please send any questions you may have through the Q&A function and we'll get to them um, probably mid midway through the conversation. Um, so I wanna introduce our panelists. We're gonna start with our, our Californian uh, guests. Um, first, we have Latanya uh, Reese-Miles. Um, uh, Latanya or LT, she's got a really cool nickname. Uh, she's um, she's the director of university partnerships at Reup Education. Uh, Reup focuses on helping millions of adults who started college, who started college, stopped and want to return. And um, through her advocacy, LT works with groups and initiatives related to diversity, equity, and access uh, for students, especially low-income, non-traditional, and or students of color. Uh, welcome, LT. Thank you, Charlie. Uh, next, <laughs> welcome, sorry. Uh, Mona, next we have Mona Tawatao. Uh, she's the legal director of the Equal Justice Society and oversees the group's litigation advocacy on behalf of and in, on behalf of and in partnership uh, with community-based organizations and families to dismantle the school to, to prison pipeline and to fight race discrimination and promote equity in K through 12 and higher education, um, the justice system and other institutions. Wow, that's a lot. Uh, so <laughs> welcome, Mona. Um, uh, oh, I think you are on mute, but, um, uh, but We'll unmute you soon. <laughs> uh, next, we have um, uh, we're, I'm going to introduce Michael uh, Kibben, Kibbins first. Uh, he's from the Lawyers for Civil Rights in Boston. Uh, he is the Lauren Sampson Fellow this year. Uh, welcome, Michael. Um, Michael represents uh, clients in a variety of civil rights cases, including police accountability, education, employment, and climate justice. Uh, he's also the lead attorney uh, for LCR's federal civil, civil rights complaint to the Department of Education, uh, challenging donor and legacy preferences. Um, and Michael, thank you for helping to organize uh, organize all of us um, the past couple months. Um, and last but not least, we have Oren uh, Selstrom. Uh, hi, Oren. Um, Oren is also from Lawyers for Civil Rights, uh, where he serves as litigation uh, director. In that capacity, he oversees the organization's litigation advocacy work in all areas, including education, economic justice, employment, police accountability, immigration rights, and voting rights. And because this is a BBA event, I have to mention, right, your two president's awards. <laughs> <laughs> Briefly, <laughs> um, uh, actually, they were both like very recent in the last couple of years. Anyway, um, uh, for its work related, these are the BBA's President's Award, uh, one related to uh, the en masse uh, humanitarian release of civil immigration immigration detainees during the height of the pandemic, and also the other award for his response to the migrant crisis on Martha's Vineyard. All right, welcome everyone. Thank you. 
Um, all right, so we're going to um, talk about, I mean, we're, a lot of people know this seminar uh, is about um, the Supreme Court decision uh, to ban to ban affirmative action in college admissions. Um, and th this decision came down in June and what has happened um, and, um, and, you know, the next cases that may follow that. Um, but first, let's 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 set the table a little bit here. And I wanted to start with um, Oren and Michael. Um, I mean, how, uh, I, you know, I don't know if this Oren or Michael question, maybe Oren, but so how would you explain the scope of the Supreme Court decision um, in June in terms of who or what it affects? Sure, I'm happy to uh, start there, and Michael, please uh, jump in, as well as the rest of the panelists. But uh, the decision clearly scaled back substantially on what people think of traditionally as um, affirmative action. But at the same time, it did leave open uh, several avenues that I hope we'll have a chance to discuss this afternoon that are that are very important and that are really directly related to the advocacy that Lawyers for Civil Rights has done over the years to some of the points that the dissenting justices were raising in oral argument and in their opinions that still allow race consciousness uh, at times and in certain ways in the admissions process. Um, I think the easiest way to think of what the court did is it allowed colleges and universities to continue to consider race on an individual level. Uh, so Justice Roberts made a specific point in his opinion to say that students uh, could come to the admissions process and talk about how race affected them, whether through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise is how he put it. Uh, and so to be able to bring them their full selves to the admissions process and discuss how their racial identity is important to them. At the same time, what the court did was to say that universities and colleges cannot look at that on a group level. In other words, colleges and universities used to look through the admissions process at how they were going to create a class that was diverse in many aspects overall because of the so many benefits of diversity. Uh, colleges and universities used to do that. That type of group uh, looking at race is now significantly scaled back on, but that ability to look at it, uh, the how racial identity affects people on an individual level still very much remains. Oh, Erin, that's a, a very good summary of, of kind of group versus individual um, kind of perspective on on uh, looking at uh, race in, in college admissions. So Michael, um, what are you hearing from colleges and universities? I mean, I mean, can you does that mean you can even ask someone's race? Can universities actually ask for someone's race on the uh, during the admissions process? Or, or is that taboo now? Or is that illegal now? Sure. Thanks for the question, Shirley. And thanks for being the moderator today. Or and I think that was a great summary. I think what we're understanding is that colleges are in the process of reassessing what their admissions processes are going to look like. And that's going to be done on a college to college, university to university basis. And we're going to have to see uh, what that process looks like and how it's going to be changed. Some colleges have already 
changed what their admissions applications look like. And we're going to be seeing that as we move along through this next admissions cycle. So to a certain extent, as Orrin explained, affirmative action still exists to a certain extent. And what that means and how that's going to be used, what tools the universities and colleges are going to utilize are, are all going to be things that need creative solutions. And we're certainly going to be in a space where we're looking at what is available to the universities and colleges as those tools, maybe ways to look at different avenues than we have before, different ways of recruiting, different ways of ensuring retention in the universities and colleges as well. I mean, Mona and LT, are you, are you like Michael said, your um, edu- um, colleges are already making adjustments. I mean, what are the the type of things that you're seeing already and and um i mean is your sense that they are really mindful there or i guess are they fearful of of being sued like harvard was i mean are they being incredibly careful right now i i can start and mona if you want to jump in i don't know surely now if you want me to recap what what i'm seeing if go into that level of detail um, yeah, you know, I, I'd love yeah. to see what seeing, I mean, because, you know, I think for most of us, we read the headlines in June. And now, um, I mean, uh, you know, it's not like they can wait, wait a year right. <laughs> to implement the changes. Uh, they're already starting to uh, going through admissions process right now. Mm-hmm. Ab- absolutely. So happy to elaborate on some of those creative things that Michael mentioned. Um, one of the obvious places is like the essay application essay prompt where they're asking students to address, and in some cases, um, the Supreme Court decision directly, or maybe a little bit more indirect, just in terms of having students identify lived experience, or as Michael also mentions, or um, Oren also mentioned, sort of how race may have impacted them, not necessarily as a lived experience. We're also seeing some institutions use other ter- other things besides race as a proxy. So, for example, first generation status or starting to focus on socioeconomic um, um, status. One of the challenges with that, while those are important, we also need to be really clear that those are not substitutions for race either. So while we, we would love to diversify those populations, just keep in mind that that's also going to be a limitation. I want to give an example from Lafayette College. Um, President Nicole Hurd has led her team in the application process. So one of the things that they have done is limited extra the number of extracurricular activities that a student can list. Let me restate that. Limit the number of extracurricular activities, because what we know from um, sort of traditional processes when students list a lot of extracurricular activities, that's a signal about their social capital, their economic capital. And so if you put a finite number, it actually levels the playing field a bit. And you start to capture first generation students, for example, who may not have had the opportunity to travel or to do, you know, to, you know, spend time doing internships. They may have been babysitting, for example, so you can start to capture that already in place for many institutions was making uh, standardized tests optional as a way of capturing um, diversity as well. And of course, expanding just overall outreach and and recruitment. So these are some of the things that are starting to happen with institutions. Mm -hmm. Mona, maybe you could talk about 
um, what you've seen happen in California um, to uh, diversity on campus and recruiting um, after the you know California voters in 1996 passed uh, Prop 209 that long ago banned uh, race in the college admissions program and what happened there? Yeah, thank you, Shirley. Um, I, I do wanna talk about those and I will just say that the statistics are pretty dire, um, but I think what I would want to convey to people is it's important to know what happened in California to underscore and really emphasize how important it is to do the work that um, people and organizations like Latanya are doing to you know, really have that knowledge base about uh, as it's as it's evolving, what colleges and universities are doing, so that we can educate parents and students and and do a lot more to uh, address the what's happening in the wake of the Supreme Court decision. So, in California, the affirmative action ban passed in 1996, and I will just talk about three different uh, after effects. One, it had an immediate and catastrophic effect on campus diversity. Two, those effects continue to this day, and three, there are downstream effects of that. Um, immediately in the three years after Prop 209 passed the ban, um, the average annual enrollment rate across uh, the UCs for Black students declined by over 21%, for Latinx students, 13%. And in the flagship campuses, Berkeley and UCLA, uh, an enormous drop, 50%. Enrollment of students from underrepresented groups, and so when I say underrepresented, I mean groups whose presence on campuses does not match their uh, state demographic. Those underrepresented groups' enrollment plummeted, even while the trend was overall population of people from those groups rose in California. So, for example, in 1995, a year before the ban passed, 38% of all uh, high school grads in California came from underrepresented groups compared to 21% of UC freshmen from the group. Um, and then even seven years later, the population of high school grads from underrepresented groups grew to nearly 49% of high school grads compared to 20% of UC freshmen. So there's this, this disconnect, this disparity. Some of you may be familiar with the infamous 96 of UCLA referring to the number of black freshmen admitted in 2006. That's 96 black freshmen out of 4,852. So these after effects in immediate and, and um, you know, even in the decade follow, following were very uh, significant. Mona, but how can, the, can, can this, this time be different? I mean, now that we do, we've seen what happened in California, and now that we have this new Supreme Court ruling that will affect many more universities, colleges, I mean, can we, can we somehow not repeat that or, or at least blunt the impact? Um, I think I would say we can, we can blunt the impact and we need to do, you know, pull out all the stops and, um, you know, recognize that these disparities uh, will, I mean, I believe in, in the future of a multiracial democracy. And I think that's why we, we do this work really at our, at our core. So I think that there are all kinds of ways, things we can do. Um, one, I'll just go back to, I mean, we're hearing already, you know, students who, I'll just go back to one statistic, which is um, following the, uh, the ban, 
um, many students, they just took themselves out of the running, qualified Black and Latinx students who could have gotten into at least any of, you know, many of them, any of the universities. And so we're hearing some of those, anecdotally, at least some of those stories now about people who are confused and, and interpreting the Supreme Court case, not paying attention to the very important language that that Oren highlighted at the beginning. So one thing we can do is double and triple down on the kind of work that LaTanya is doing to massively educate people um, uh, to understand um, what is, is still available and, and especially to, to send the message to parents and students not to, you know, let this um, kill their dreams. Um, and that may sound kind of lofty or, or whatever, but I think it's really critical. I think another thing that is so important, and this, you know, I, I think this work will be highlighted later in this discussion, is to look at the structural barriers. The we, there are alternative pathways to opportunity. Latanya mentioned one of them at one of the universities. Other things like seriously looking at SAT and ACT. Um, their their continued use and still the trend is good is going in a good way but what can we do to um, address the fact that that is not a good predictor of how well a student does in college and um, you know take that frankly take down that barrier even more um, and and I know that there's going to be discussion about um, ways that we can remove uh, uh, other barriers to opportunity that really don't need need to be there and um, are not evidence-based reasons for, you know, being factors in admissions. Sure, Shirley, I'm on it. I'd like to, um, I appreciate you bringing up UCLA and want to add even more color to that because I was a administrator and part-time faculty member at that time. Um, first of all, I need to acknowledge, I also was a beneficiary of affirmative action as, you know, I've received a, a fellowship that was race-based to start my graduate program at UCLA, but I was there um, in 2006. And I would love for people to imagine what that must have felt like to be one of 96 Black students in a freshman class of five thousand what would that what is that like to go to class what is that like to live in the residence halls or even commute to campus and so um as this as we were welcoming this this group of students we had to think about attacking this issue from a number of different fronts it included um addressing it in the curriculum. So for me, I was able, along with a colleague, to create a one-unit course called the Black Student Experience at UCLA that these students could take and see one another. It wasn't required, but as you can imagine, it became a space where those students could find one another, and then we could talk about how to address their experience on campus. It also meant being even more thoughtful about who the resident assistants are. Out of this program, out, out of this, this moment, um, UCLA created the African diaspora theme floor, right? Again, no one required to be there, but we had to think about this from a number of different ways. And I also want to acknowledge the outpouring of support from our alumni who, um, who reached out to these students to welcome them, to make sure that their experience, once they're in there, that their, that their experience was an over overall positive one. So I, I would say just in general, if anyone is facing this and looking for a North Star, it is bleak like mentioned, like Mona mentioned, but look at what how UCLA did respond to to um uh, to Prop 209. Mm -hmm. Right. 
Um, so I'm starting to get some good questions from the audience and I might start to weave, weave them in and, and maybe I can get my lawyers back, <laughs> the, I mean, Michael and from LCR to talk a little bit too. Um, so um, ba- let, let's talk, what Mona and LaTanya LT were talking about is, um, you know, universities and colleges getting more creative about recruiting or, or doubling down on recruiting and, and thinking of new ways to um, uh, to, to, to attract diverse uh, students. Um, and w- are, are you, will, will any of that run afoul of, of, of the law? <laughs> or will, will, will doing that um, uh, make institutions more vulnerable to new lawsuits or n- new legal challenges, uh, given what the Supreme Court has done with affirmative action? Um, I'm happy to start, and Michael, uh, please jump on. I, I think the short answer is no, that none of that should be a problem. Um, you know, we really have the experience of um, California now to look at, uh, you know, for better, or for worse, California sort of led the way <clears throat> there however many years ago. Um, I was also living and working in California at the time. And I remember what a blow it was to the educational system, how quickly it came and how quickly uh, the the impacts were felt. Uh, But California through advocates like Mona and LaTanya and their organizations have really pushed back hard and consistently to think about all the other ways to increase equity and to ensure equal opportunity to the best that it can be done. And so I think we will be able to learn from all of those experiences. Uh, The many schools are also um, much uh, smaller than the UC system. One of the things that uh, hampered, I think the University of California's efforts Uh, post Prop 209, or at least made them uh, more difficult, was the sheer size with 200,000 applicants in any given year. It's much easier for smaller institutions uh, to undertake the kind of holistic review, the kind of individualized review that the Supreme Court has said is perfectly acceptable. And all of the other types of efforts that Uh, Mona and LaTanya have discussed in terms of uh, aggressive recruitment and tearing down other barriers that stand in the way of equal opportunity. All of those are certainly um, still not only permissible, but I think we would argue at Lawyers for Civil Rights are mandated under federal anti-discrimination law. Yeah, and just to continue on that, I think, you know, to mention some of those factors that were even mentioned before, socioeconomic factors, recruiting by zip code. You know, there are other tools in the chest, things like having the top person at each high school in the state where the institution is located be admitted to the college. There are several other types of tools and ways that are innovative and some are new and some are old. And I think that there are ways to have the schools either reinvigorate their use of those or really take a look at the way that those tools are being used in other areas to ensure that diversity is maintained as something that's a a crucial thought for what campus diversity needs to look like. All right, I wanna uh, stay on the topic of uh, higher ed and um, uh, and, and some of these, uh, affirmative action issues. Um, I have a really great question. Um, so, uh, so this from the audience. So may a college declare that it is an anti-racist institution and ask applicants to describe whether they are anti-racist 
and what actions have they taken to live that belief? Is is that is that okay? Okay, Oren, I think Oren and Michael, I think that's, that those are your I, questions. I was pausing, not because it's a hard question, because I wanted to see if others were going to jump in. I think that's absolutely, of course, that's allowed. That uh, a college and university can say that we stand strongly against anti-discrimination, I mean, against discrimination, that we are anti-racist, um, and ask students what they would bring to that environment, how they would address that in their own lives. As LaTanya, I think, mentioned, there are already many colleges and universities that are changing their admissions essay questions um, to be actually very similar to that. Um, and so that type of uh, stance, a strong stance by colleges and universities to say we stand against discrimination and we want students who uh, you know, will advance those goals and we want people to tell us uh, how you would do that if you were admitted to a student as a student here are certainly acceptable and we would say are the type of uh, reform that is absolutely necessary in the time that we're in. And I'll just jump in what I would advise institutions to do because some of them are so fired up and they want to respond is actually have a student re review those prompts before <laughs> before they um you know, uh, before they go wide. Why? Because some of them are often loaded with jargon, to be honest, right? And so if a student isn't familiar, and I'm thinking particularly of like first-generation students, for example, knowing that there is a variety of backgrounds and all that, but any essay prompt that's loaded with jargon is going to, um, is going to disproportionately impact those who aren't familiar with that language. So while schools are, you know, and it's it's great to, to see this, but they also have to educate the families, the communities, and the students on how to address the prompt. Yeah, and to add on to that, I think it's important to emphasize that schools can be very resilient. You know, they can stand their ground. There's a lot of legal, a legal opportunity, a lot of legal background that they can stand on to say that what we're trying to do is actually in compliance or with the goal of being anti-discriminatory. So while yes, there are these new changes and guidelines that came down from the Supreme Court in June, that doesn't do away with many of the other types of guidelines or types of regulations that the schools can put in place and have put in place. And reshaping that doesn't mean you have to do away with that. Shirley, I think you're oh, muted. Oh, you're, you're muted, Shirley. I'm going to throw in, sorry, thank you. I'm going to throw in one more question um, uh, from the audience and then we'll move on. Um, so this is a question from someone. Um, uh, I'm very worried about identity-based scholarships for students with specific racial or ethnic backgrounds getting eliminated as part of a college's institutional aid and ultimately getting outlawed as a practice for private foundations and charities. Um, how is this law evolving? I can jump in just quickly there. I think what we've seen as on the heels of the decision from the Supreme Court are a number of legal challenges to all types of diversity, equity, and inclusion programs, including scholarship and fellowship types of programs. From the Supreme Court perspective and from that decision, what we know is that decision is limited 
to the use and consideration of race, particularly in higher education, and does not apply to many of the other industries and arenas where we're seeing these challenges. So in terms of how the law is evolving, yes, we are, we're seeing these challenges, but, and many of those challenges are relying on the reasoning in the Supreme Court's decision, but our position is that that reliance is misplaced because the decision deals with a very narrow issue in higher education and the use of race in it. Mm-hmm. All right, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm gonna have one more question from the audience. This is a good one while we're on the uh, higher ed and maybe this is something um, Mona can tackle. So, um, I, so the question is, I expect that well-funded progressive institutions with savvy attorneys, uh, oh, I don't know what this word is, uh, will work on uh, creative ways uh, to ensure campus diversity within the letter of the law. But how can educational institutions who might fear litigation or who might not have the same resources as an institution like Harvard push for campus diversity and or contribute to improve campus diversity? Uh, maybe that's something for, for Mona. Uh, I am sorry. Um, oh. Surely you're going in and out on my end. I oh, sorry. I think you're frozen too now. Oh, uh, <laughs> um, Mona, did you hear me? I think you're frozen. Maybe did others hear the question? Uh, Latanya, do you want to take it on? Yeah, I, I cannot address the legal standpoint, right? Uh, that would be for, for Michael and Oren. But I think we've heard already some of the creative um, approaches that actually don't require financial, fiscal resources. Um, but, well, I guess one thing I'll say is it is important to understand what the law is in your, you know, in your in your area. Like a conversation like this today, I know I've been better informed about it, right? And not just read the headlines, but actually learn more about what the the actual impact is. But my my other point also is that um, thinking of sort of um, when we're talking about recruitment, yes, there are going to be some institutions that can fly students in and things like that. But there, you know, there are other other sort of low cost measures like Zoom meetings <laughs> like this to recruit students. Changing the application process and the essay prompt is not one that requires fiscal power. It's going to take some person power, of course. And what I would say to that is making sure that. Um, folks come together in terms of like an advisory team, not try to solve a problem or address this issue just as a a singular individual, have people come together and do some brainstorming around the issue. Mona's back. Maybe Mona can talk a little bit more. Mona, can I add one more thought to this question so that, sorry, I I think I wanted to add one more twist to the question because I think also embedded in that question is, um, you know, Harvard has an incredible amount of resources um, to defend themselves against a lawsuit. So what if you're a college or university, you're doing the creative things or thinking about more creative ways uh, to attract diverse students, but you're scared of potential litigation down the line? Like, are there resources for those smaller colleges and universities who want to be on the cutting edge, but need lawyers or or need someone to help defend their programs? I mean, is there something like that for them? Well, I, I mean, I would kind of tag on to what Latanya was saying, which is, I think there is a panoply of things that um, 
uh, colleges and universities can do. And I think, um, you know, maybe LaTanya has a better handle on, you know, the a clearinghouse or anything like that, but um, where people can, can draw from uh, all kinds of experiences that other similar, similarly situated colleges and universities have had. Um, I guess I would, I would also say, you know, uh, stay in touch with civil rights organizations because um, you shouldn't assume that uh, there aren't attorneys or, or aren't people who are willing to um, partner and and maybe even take on those 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 challenges should they come um, because we are you know this is a national fight there are national coalitions and national networks that are here to support. Um, certainly students and also universities and colleges. And so, uh, you know, maybe others on the panel have more specific suggestions. I could just uh, add to that briefly. I think I think what Latanya and, and Mona has said is exactly right. I think any, any attorney will tell you that it's uh, the best way to approach any kind of legal issue is to do it proactively, that it's uh, it's going to be much more cost effective to seek out legal advice ahead of time before doing something and waiting to get sued and then having to defend against it. Um, and I think that for most colleges and universities, um, you know, a little bit of uh, that proactive legal advice will go a long way to, to, to showing the full range of possibilities that are open uh, to uh, eliminating risk that can be eliminated uh, consistently with the institution's values. But then to recognize that um, these are important civil rights struggles and colleges and universities need to stand up and can't be um, intimidated by folks who are really overreaching and saying that the decision means more than it does. And I think we've seen that in other arenas outside of higher education, but in higher education itself, it's the same way. There's a lot that still can be done. Colleges and universities just need to be smart about it. Um, all right, so keep those good questions uh, coming through the Q&A function. Um, I want to move on to talk a little bit about uh, what Michael and LCR has been doing in terms of um, the, uh, donor and legacy preferences in the admissions process. Um, I, I don't know if it's just like a, a week later or maybe days later after the Supreme Court decision. Um, LCR, I think you filed a lawsuit against um, uh, Department, was it Department of Education and Harvard or uh, sure. So it was a federal civil rights complaint to the Department of Education in the Office for Civil Rights. And it was related to donor legacy preferences um, at Harvard. And, and it was it just at Harvard or, co or colleges in general? So the complaint itself names Harvard as the respondent. But as we know, Harvard is a large institution and many of the practices that it has for its admissions protocols are also applied at other institutions, whether within the Ivy League or out. So what we know is that the impact that this type of preference has is widespread. And as Mona said, it's a national issue. And we know that while Harvard is the one named in the complaint, that this will have a, a more national impact. And so to talk a little bit more about um, some of the numbers, right, about uh, what happens when universities and colleges um, have legacy preferences. Sure. So what we know from a lot of the data that was 
that was put out from Harvard during the affirmative action litigation is that with respect to the donor and legacy preferences, those students who are able to check that box, so to speak, are admitted at rates of six to seven times the amount of students who don't have those preferences. And so when nearly 70% of the applicants who receive that preference are, are white applicants, we know that there is a disproportionate impact on the students of color who traditionally are not able to take advantage of having one of those preferences or even both. And where legacies at Harvard in particular can make up nearly a third of the class, you can see that there's an inequity with respect to how, how students are admitted and what their impact is. So the importance of higher education in particular, much less at schools like Harvard, is to put out a platform. It's a way that students and can enter the world and gain success. And so what we need to make sure of is that there is equity in the way that those students are admitted so that the success is shared amongst uh, groups that are representative of what our nation looks like. You're muted again, Shirley. Sorry, I'm trying to be, I usually leave my uh, microphone on, but I'm trying to be, I got a fan going, it's hot in this room. <laughs> so I'm trying to, <laughs> um, so Mona and LT, uh, do you, do you anticipate um, colleges and universities to preempt, to preemptively uh, drop these preferences? Well, I, I can start by saying, I hope so. <laughs> you know, um, I really think when I was talking about doubling and tripling down on uh, strategies and being creative, it's, these are so important. I mean, you know, we need to look at the evidence and we need to look at the statistics at what is uh, these barriers uh, and these these barriers to opportunity. Um, just take the, the SAT and ACT, if I can just pivot to that for a second. Um, the UCs themselves, study after study, have known for decades or had known for decades that they don't. They have very little predictive value uh, in terms of college success um, since the '60s, and so, you know, I think it, it took a lawsuit that we were part of to to bring that down in California. Um, but I would hope that, you know, I I'm a I'm a UC kid. I got in through the diversity, and that the value that I received from that. Um, education from everything that I experienced just just meant so much to me and uh, you know like Latanya and I just think the 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 mandate of these schools is to um, give opportunity they, they really are um, the foundation in so many ways of the future of our country and I I just would really hope um, you know institutes of learning look at this evidence look at um, the, the harm in, in maintaining these barriers and do do take up that mental and, and, and to their credit, many universities all, all from all levels all over the country are doing that. So I'm hopeful that that um, many, many more will. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, if I, I could. Yeah, I don't think even MIT, right? Maybe Mike, we could talk about some of the colleges that don't have legacy preferences like MIT, right? They've never had it, I, I don't believe. 
Sure. So there are, as you mentioned, there are a number of institutions that never had legacy and donor preferences. There are also several that have done away with their legacy preferences very recently following after our federal civil rights complaint to the Department of Education, including schools like Wesleyan, schools like uh, Virginia Tech that have scaled back on their the way that they look at admissions processes and the way that legacy plays a part in that or doesn't play a part in that. So what we know is that there's momentum going towards the idea that we should be acknowledging that legacy and donor preferences do not have a space in higher education due to the disparate impact that it has on the applicants of color. We also know that President Biden, for example, has called out legacy preferences. There have been letters from senators. There is federal and state legislation being filed about ending these legacy preferences. And we also know that there are polls that have shown that nearly 70% of Americans don't support the idea of legacy preferences. And there's a reason why. It's because it's understood to be an unfair advantage that's unearned by the actual applicant themselves. LT, would you would you recommend colleges and universities drop these legacy and and uh, donor uh, preferences immediately? Uh, well, one thing I'm going to add to this conversation, which you know is not a sexy answer um, about legacy admissions, is that it, it really depends on the institution. There are some institutions where legacy admissions, and Michael is addressing this, um, is a big part of the culture. I'm talking about the University of Virginia, for example, my home state that has an entire office dedicated to supporting their legacy admits, right? Um, a lot of HBCUs have a strong like legacy culture as well. So it's going to really depend on the institution. Do they absolutely benefit, like Michael said, students that, you know, you know, that that you know, the, the fact of being a, a legacy admin has nothing to do, you're just born into it. Yes, there's a, a definite privilege, but I def I would say institutions should be moving toward this for sure. Mm -hmm. Great. So I want to, um, we have about like 15 minutes left. And so I want to move on to um, what's happening outside of higher education. Um, you know, it's clear that proponents uh, behind banning affirmative action in college admissions, um, they've said this is just the beginning, um, that they're, they want to dismantle um, affirmative action um, in other sectors, in, in the private sector, in business, and you're starting to see lawsuits on that front. So, Michael and Oren, can you bring us up to speed on what's happened? I mean, do you, I mean, some of these suits were already filed before uh, the, the SCOTUS case in June, but it seems like accelerating or at least capturing more headlines or something. <laughs> Sure, I'm happy to start. And, and as you mentioned, Shirley, this is a very long running effort on those on the right to strike down any kinds of um, efforts to ensure equity. So this is nothing new. It's a very well-funded, well-coordinated uh, effort by those on the right who, you know, for the last 30, 40 years have been trying to strike down equity measures across a wide range of different contexts, higher education, but also employment, public contracting, uh, voting rights. So it's a concerted effort that has been going on for a long time. This is in some ways uh, nothing new, but what you say is correct, which is that they have now used the recent affirmative action decision to try and 
um, capitalize on that effort and really, um, really overreach in many ways. As people have mentioned about this particular Supreme Court decision, it is limited to the higher education context. The higher education context has always in these cases been set apart as somewhat unique from different other spheres like employment, contracting, voting rights. Um, higher education has always, for example, allowed the compelling interest of diversity to be uh, considered, which is something that has not been allowed in other spheres. So higher education has always sort of uh, had a separate place in the law. And nothing in the Supreme Court's decision in the um, Harvard case really changes that. Um, certainly in the higher education space, as we've talked about, there are some changes, but there's nothing in the opinion that goes further than that and says that now, you know, now efforts in the employment space or in the public contracting space or voting rights space are going to change. Uh, and so that's important to realize. And the folks on the right who are trying to make more of this decision that really is there, I think recognize that because the cases that have been filed, and uh, we can talk a little bit more about some of those specifics, but the cases don't really rely on the Harvard decision. It's really more in the public rhetoric that they are trying to say, oh, this means that the Supreme Court is now, or courts are now gonna strike down any equity efforts. And that's really not the case. It, it, you know, courts are very unpredictable. Certainly, we have a very conservative Supreme Court now. But you know, if you look at some of the recent decisions uh, under Title VII, which is the employment uh, discrimination federal statute, uh, you know, the most recent decision on that actually expanded protection to LGBTQ individuals in the Bostock case. You know, if you look at voting rights, everybody thought uh, the voting rights case that was up before the Supreme Court last term was going to mean voting rights was going to be eviscerated. And that didn't happen. The Supreme Court reaffirmed uh, voting rights jurisprudence in that case. So um, we really need to be cautious and we really urge people to be cautious in not thinking that this decision says more than it does. It affects higher education. It does not affect employment, contracting, voting rights. But Orrin, already you're starting to see in, in some, of the, some of these relatively new um, challenges that, you know, I think there was one where, where they reversed course, they actually changed um, some language. I mean, I don't know if that means that they uh, got rid of diversity, uh, you know, in a fellowship program, but at least they changed the the wording, I guess. I mean, you know, should is, is that a, is, is that setting a dangerous precedent precedent for those who, who want to stand by their um, diversity programs? We think it is. It's not, you know, precedent in the legal sense, but certainly we don't think it is wise or prudent or the right thing to do for institutions to just cave. Uh, you know, that's what the other side wants, essentially. They want to be able to, you know, send a demand letter or uh, make some, you know, lofty rhetorical point and say, therefore, any kind of program that you have to advance equity, you need to change or dismantle. Uh, that's an easy win for them. And we reject that. Certainly from a legal point of view, there's no need for that. And in fact, companies need to keep their anti-discrimination programs in place to avoid running into discrimination lawsuits. It's a smart, proactive way if you have a diversity, equity, and inclusion program to avoid liability under federal anti-discrimination laws. 
So unfortunately, what you see is there are some people who become intimidated and change, but that's not necessary. And we would argue this is the time that companies and institutions need to stand strong for their principles and for the legal backing behind these strong anti-discrimination laws that exist. LT, do you, and Mona, or maybe this is a better question for LT, but um, are, are there lessons learned from higher ed that can be applied to other sectors to try to maintain diversity programs or initiatives or, um, you know, are, are there, I guess, corollaries <laughs> in the private sector? Um, you know, a lot of my work is still, I'm a higher ed adjacent, but still right. working to support um, higher ed institutions. Um, so for me specifically, we're looking at um, diversifying um, institutions by looking at adult learners who stopped out, right? And that's a big workforce development issue as well. So we're talking specifically about individuals who have some college credit, but no degree of which there are millions, by the way. So that's the like the primary focus that, that I have right now. I, I, I can't think of any other... We're thinking about just lessons learned from oh. higher ed that could be applied. Like, like you were talking about mm -hmm. left college, which is great, like limiting the number of extracurricular activities. Okay. And I guess I said, and, and you're starting to see this in your, in your line of work. I, I see this in the uh, companies. They're starting to um, uh, drop, not, not mandate that every job requires a, a four-year degree. Right. Oh, right. <laughs> like there's, there's actually, I guess the corollary would be to, 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 take a look at their structural, um, uh, are there more structural barriers that they could, uh, structural um, changes they can make? You know? The answer is always yes, right? <laughs> <laughs> There's always the structural barriers. Another, another concept that um, I think is important is a hidden curriculum, right? That sometimes we don't um, realize that the thing that we're they're putting out, that we've put out there, whether it's college admissions or access to a job, requires some insider information. It appears neutral. It seems like, you know, everyone should know something. And there's there's definitely a corollary there. So for example, let's say getting a tech job. And, you know, a lot of people just will say, oh, I'm going to go online and apply for this job when we know 90% of jobs are gained because you know someone ahead of time, right? And so when we, you know, apply those types of um, analogies, then absolutely there's a corollary. Mm -hmm. Great. All right, keep those questions coming. Um, I think there's one more that I can drop in. This is back to, um, uh, I feel like we've answered this question, but I'll ask it again, I guess. But uh, this is about, Turning, turning to the world of college application coaching and mentoring, uh, particularly where focused on supporting black and brown and underrepresented and under-resourced applicants, how are you seeing these kinds of programs and initiatives respond to the SCOTUS decision um, to educate and otherwise support applicants? Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, I, I, one, one of the things I appreciate about that is to acknowledge that it does take a village, right? Not just an institution responding, um, a number of community groups that, you know, were mentioned, including, first of all, we need to acknowledge like longstanding programs like Upward Bound, AVID, College Track, all these sort of pre-college programs and the long, long um, work history of work that they've been doing. 
also acknowledging faith-based institutions. They do a lot of work along this along these lines. And there's also a lot of opportunity for Greek letter organizations to be involved and offer support. And when we say support, again, it's not just for the individual student, it's often communal support and support for the family and uh, whoever the student's caregiver is as well. And the, the other thing I'll say is that, you know, we can talk more about the work that students will, will will be inclined to do themselves, like really fired up about the decision, which I think is which which on the one hand I think is really great. We want to um, empower students and make sure that they have agency. But I tell people if the student is the primary driver of any movement, it is bound to it's going to fail, right? Because students they cycle through. That's the whole point, right? There has to be structure in place. The university has to support those students give them resources, offer credit maybe for the work that they're going to go do out in the streets anyway, or some type of stipend, like it all has to come together. Anything else? Any other uh, thoughts on that? Well, uh, all right. If, if one, if one, if anyone wants to ask one last question <laughs> in the last five minutes, um, anyways, um, I, I think this has been a great discussion. It, you know, I knew that um, the Supreme Court had not outright banned um, race, uh, race conscious um, or, you know, race to be considered, um, you know, it, it didn't completely ban race in the admissions process. So I think that's I knew that. But I think it's really great to look at how colleges and universities how they can be proactive to make sure that their other systems um, uh, are, are, you know, are, are not inherently biased, and that they can do what Lafayette College is doing, and 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 the, and um, and others, uh, whether it's dropping um, SAT uh, scores or and and certain um, historically known tests that um, that hurt underrepresented students. So. Um, uh, so it seems like there's a lot of work uh, that um, for um, colleges and universities that all is is not lost. So, um, all right, we did get one last question. I'll squeeze it in. This will be the very last question. So, um, okay, this is a big one. <laughs> all right, this is. Are there challenges to what courts are doing to address racial inequity? Uh, not sure, not exactly. That can go in many different directions, but I'll let I'll let Orrin and Michael figure out what exactly is meant by that. <laughs> uh, well, I can. I'm happy to start, and Michael, you can uh, chime in as well. I mean, there are always challenges. Uh, this is tough work uh, that we are doing. It's always been that way to fight for justice and equity, and um, in these spaces, and uh, there are. Uh, you know, we have a Supreme Court that is quite conservative. So yes, there are always going to be challenges. But I think the key takeaway or one key takeaway is that um, that just means we need to fight back harder and smarter. Um, because uh, if that is still going to be the ultimate goal of justice and equity, then uh, we can't give up. Our clients depend on us to keep fighting, to do it in creative ways, whether that's in the courtroom or outside of the courtroom, working with institutions that are also um, aligned and changing hearts and minds in order to get to the place that we wanna go. So certainly this is a challenging time, but uh, it's always been challenging and working together, we can come up with those creative solutions to move forward. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And I think just on the end of that, there are some things that are already in place. I think I mentioned before some federal and state legislation is one way to ensure that these types of challenges just don't go through the courts. And then, as Warren said, we just sort of give up once we receive a decision like the one on affirmative action from the Supreme Court. There are obviously executive agency types of actions like the investigation that the Department of Education has opened up in response to our federal civil rights complaint against Harvard. But then there are also local and community group type of efforts that can be made as well that that Latani has been talking about. And I think it's a multi-pronged approach that we need to ensure that we're not just relying on any one avenue to get to where we'd like to get to in terms of equity. And sorry to be a disembodied voice. I don't know if you can hear me. Turned off my signal. To, but um, yeah, Equal Justice Society, you know, parent, I want to go back to what Warren said about parents and families. They're depending on us. Um, and we can't simply shrug and say, you know, this is a, this got a different action. Um, we've heard today all of these really, uh, frankly, exciting um efforts that are going on from everyone here and I'm sure people who are who are out there. So, you know, we're here to to one because um we have to and it's expected of us as it should be.